Galatians chapter 3, verses 15 to 29. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it's been ratified. Now, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions, until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we're no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you're all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptised into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. After a late night last night getting home, I, I might be going for the water a bit today. I'm a bit croaky in the voice. Now... For, for some folk who are pretty much against God and, and, and want to treat God as if he doesn't exist, one of the most common arguments that they come up with is that the God of the Old Testament is so different to the God of the New Testament. Now, we've all heard somebody say that, I'm sure. Um, now, whenever somebody says anything like that, straight away that tells me something about them. They, they don't understand God at all. And they certainly don't understand the Old Testament very well, or even the New Testament for that matter. Because when you seriously study the Old Testament, the love that God has for his people and God's plan of salvation in Christ, it's there. And it's there all the way through. And at times it's really prominent. The God of the Old Testament is exactly the same as the God of the New Testament. And that shouldn't be a surprise to us because we know that God is unchangeable. And throughout the whole Bible, it's the story of God's continuing love and restoration for his people. Now, in Christian circles, at times we talk a fair bit about the old covenant versus the new covenant. 
And if you've been in church for a while, you will have heard of these things. Um, but the thing is, some people have heard this ter terminology, but never really had anyone explain it to them. A covenant is like a contract. It's a treaty, an agreement, an alliance. Uh, we were at a wedding last night at Kuby Dam, just the other side of Toowoomba, and um, there was a young lady, I guess you'd call her, she, um, late teens, who I think being at a wedding is a bit different for her, and she sort of started asking questions about what's the signing of the register about? Why do they have to sign the register? What's the point of it? Well, we're actually, it's like, actually like a contract. It's actually a covenant in Christian language, but it's actually like a contract. They're signing to say that I'm marrying this person and we're going to spend the rest of our lives together. Um, and this is what God's covenant is about with us. And only because God never goes back on his word, with God it's an unbreakable contract. And God has made a number of covenants with his people. The first covenant that we find is in Genesis chapter 6, and it's a covenant that God made with Noah. God would save Noah and his family and the animals, and the flood, it was a time of God's judgment, but only partial judgment, and it was because of the greatness of sin. But God's covenant was that he would never again destroy the whole earth by flood. Now... Oh, yes, um, we know that there are still floods, and we've seen it this very week, um, particularly for the folk down in the Hawkesbury and Nepean area. And by the way, we've actually got people who live in that area who, who listen in to Bush Disciples every week. And I contacted one of these couples. By the way, hello, Dave and Jen, if you're listening. I suspect that you probably will. Um, and these guys, they weren't evacuated, but they did leave their home because Dave's uh, incapacitated. And um, if they didn't leave their home, then they might have come to a point where it was a bit difficult for them. But so we know that there's floods happening still, but God's covenant with Noah was that he would never again destroy the whole earth through flood. And the sign of this covenant is the rainbow. Every time we see a rainbow, they're beautiful things, rainbows, aren't they? I know sometimes I see a particularly good one and I rush to grab the camera to get a good photo of it. Um, but the rainbow is God's sign. It's God's reminder to us of his covenant. And so every time we see a rainbow, we are reminded that never again will God destroy the whole world through flood. It says until the end of time that the seasons will remain and the planting time and harvest time will remain. And that strikes a chord with people in a rural area, doesn't it? That was the first covenant. The second covenant is the covenant that God made with Abraham. And we just read about that just now. There was some mention of that. And God's covenant with Abraham was that God was going to bless Abraham in two ways. Abraham would become a father of a great nation. And secondly, through Abraham, all the peoples of the earth would be blessed. That means us. And all Abraham had to do was believe and follow God. And so the covenant of Abraham was like a covenant that he entered by faith. Now, at times, Abraham wasn't so good at that. 
He wasn't so good at having faith in God and following God. And at times Abraham tried to take matters into his own hands. And so it sort of got to the stage where Abraham was 86 years old. Right? And, and God had made the promise to him that he was going to be a great nation. But the problem was he, he didn't have a single kid. And how, was I, how was my line going to continue on? And so Sarah came up with a bit of a plan. Well, you take my servant girl, Hagar. And um, by Hagar, he had a son, uh, Ishmael. But that wasn't God's plan. And so Ishmael ended up leaving. But Abraham was 100 years old. And I think Sarah was 90 before Isaac was born. I don't know about you, but I certainly wouldn't want to be getting up to a crying kid when I'm 100 years old. And Robin says, there's no chance of that because you'd never hear them. I think I'll be well and truly stone deaf by then. But the covenant with Abraham is what Paul is talking about in today's reading. When he says, because all nations will be blessed through Abraham. But there's another covenant that came after that, which Paul also talks about in today's reading. This is the third covenant, the, the covenant that God made with Moses. And this is the covenant where God had rescued his people out of captivity in Egypt, and he was going to give them safety and prosperity in the promised land. But in order for them to be God's treasured possession, for them to be God's kingdom of priests and to be his holy nation, the requirements for Israel were to keep the commandments of God, to keep God's covenantal law. As a nation, there were blessings for them if they did keep God's commandments. But there were also curses if they did not keep his commandments. Not only this, but the covenant of Moses, which we sometimes call the Mosaic Law, um, by the way, that doesn't mean that it was written down with coloured pebbles on a floor. It's called the Mosaic Covenant because it's the covenant of Moses. Um, but this covenant also provided a pattern for sacrificial worship. And importantly, it provided a way of atoning for the sins of the people of God. Right? So if they sinned, that wasn't the end of it for them. They could atone for their sins with particular sacrifices and prayers and whatnot. And in Galatians, where Paul is talking about the works of the law, he's pretty much talking about the covenant of Moses, where they were given the law. A fourth covenant was a covenant that God made with King David that through the line of David, a king would arise and all nations would be blessed through that king. Uh, who do you think that king might be? Jesus. Yep. And the fifth covenant is the best one of the lot. It's what we call the new covenant. And it was basically the covenant that all of the other covenants were looking forward to. The coming of Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ dying on the cross to save us from our sins and rising to life again to give us eternal life. And this covenant, like the covenant of Abraham, is a covenant that we enter by faith, right? We're not born into it, 
We don't buy into it. We don't earn our way into this covenant. This covenant is something that we only enter by faith, by believing in God. And all who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and submit to him as their Lord shall receive eternal life. Do you know what? Some of the best part of the new covenant is something that we sometimes overlook. See, the new covenant isn't just about getting the prize at the end and woohoo, we can get to go to heaven. And that's why this covenant is so good and why it's so different to other covenants. We talked last week about how we have a treasure in jars of clay, right? Our bodies, let's face it, our bodies are fragile, weak sorts of things. And for some of us, our bodies are not at all glorious. But we carry a treasure. Jesus Christ lives in us. The new covenant is when we give ourselves to him, he comes into us, he fills us with his spirit and he gives us love and strength and hope and joy. And all of these things flow not from ourselves, they flow simply because we're connected to God. And so the new covenant, that's pretty sweet. You know, if, if we were still living in the old covenant, the very best location for us to be having church here at St George, it'd probably be out at the old Rue Works and our worship would be conducted on the killing room floor and we'd be relying on the blood of bulls and goats and rams and doves to cleanse us from our sin. But we don't worship there because Jesus Christ became the once and for all sacrifice for our sins. New covenant's the way to go. And there's no point trying to return back to the old covenant because the old covenant was just a temporary measure put in place in order to keep things in order until the new covenant. And so in Hebrews chapter 8, Paul talks about how the old covenant is becoming obsolete, right? It hasn't reached total obsolescence yet. The covenantal law still has a function, and we'll talk about that shortly, but it is becoming obsolete. Robin and I just recently, very recently, had to buy a new computer, um, probably because it's less than 12 months since we bought another computer. Now, the thing is that Robin's computer, it was working fine. The hard drive worked well, the CPU, nothing wrong with it. The screen, working perfectly. Mouse and keyboard, all in good order. The RAM, functioning perfectly. So it knocked me about a bit that we needed to get a new computer. And because it was a high-end computer when we bought it at the time, it, it, it was a pretty, pretty high-up computer, and because of that, it was still had enough get up and go to make things run today. Simple tasks like spreadsheets and word processors and all that sort of stuff. The problem was, it was so old, it wouldn't continue to talk properly with my other computer because we like them to automatically update. So we have up-to-date files on both computers and, 
and it had gotten to the stage, it was so old that the software on it wouldn't talk with the, soft, with the updating software on the other computer. Well, you'd think, well, that's fine, we'll just update the software. But the problem was the operating system on the computer was so, so old, we couldn't put the latest software on it. Oh, that's no problem, we'll just put the latest operating system on it. So we put, but we can't put the latest operating system on it because the hardware on the computer was still working in 32-bit and now everything's 64-bit, and so we couldn't do it. Now, some of you, what I just sound, said sounded like blah, 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 blah. You have no idea what I just said. Did, did you get it, Pauline? You got it? Did you understand it, Margaret? You understood it as well. I bet Ardre didn't get it. No, no idea, Ardre. No, no. Well, but a few folk will understand exactly what it means. The old computer still worked in a sort of a fashion, but the new had left it behind, and the old is now redundant. It doesn't function. It's like fax machines. Who still has a fax machine? Some of you may even have one. Do you ever use it? And the young folk are probably going, what's a fax machine? Well, you'll probably see one in a, in a museum. They're an interesting device. It's a means of tediously transmitting a person's messy handwriting from one location to another over the telephone. But what I'm getting at is now that the new covenant has been made possible by the blood of Jesus, the old covenant, it doesn't save us. And it don't work. It's becoming obsolete. And it will one day reach complete obsolescence. And what Paul is telling us here is that the new covenant in Jesus Christ is what the covenant of Abraham was all about. And the covenant of Moses, which brought the law, it didn't cancel the covenant of Abraham. Um, just because it was later didn't cancel the, uh, the covenant of Abraham out. God had promised that in Abraham, that his seed, his offspring, through his offspring, all nations would be blessed. Who is the seed? Who is the offspring of Abraham? Well, Paul's saying, hey, it's a singular thing. He's not talking about the whole nation of Israel. Who is the seed of Abraham? Or would it surprise you to know that Jesus is a direct descendant of Abraham? Through who will all the nations be blessed? Through Jesus Christ. God made this promise to Abraham and Paul calculates that it was 430 years later, I haven't done the calculations myself, but let's just take Paul's word for it, that it, but it was centuries after that that the covenantal law was given to Moses. And the point that Paul is making is that the law that, that Moses got and the law that now the Judaizers were trying to tell these new Gentile Christians that they have to live by, the covenantal law of Moses, hey, that didn't cancel out the promise that God had made to Abraham. And what was that promise? That God would bless all nations through him and that it would be a blessing of faith. And the way that, that Paul's using this word, he uses the word promise. 
over and over and over again. He's took, these things come by promise. And he's basically using it interchangeably for the word grace, right? So it is by promise. It is by grace. We don't earn it. We don't buy it. We're not born to it. We're not, it's not a, a generational thing. It's a promise. By promise we receive these things. All right. So in this letter to the Galatians, Paul is hammering the Judaizers. Now, that's the, remember, those were the blokes who were trying to tell the Gentile Christians, you have to keep all the religious laws. You have to eat the right sorts of foods. You have to be circumcised, etc., etc." And Paul's saying, I won't accept these religious laws that you're trying to push on us. We don't need the old covenant law anymore because the new covenant is so much better. Grace through faith in Jesus Christ. But here's the thing. If the new covenant's so good, what, what was the purpose of the old covenant in the first place? And what's its purpose today? And that's what Paul's asking here. In, in verse 19, 19, he says, why then the law? And his answer, it was added because of transgressions, right? That, that sinful wrongdoing stuff that we do. And I'm going to share four purposes of the old covenantal law. Firstly, God's law makes sin to be a conscious act. Now, I'm pretty sure we've all heard the saying, ignorance of the law is no excuse. We've all heard that saying. Is that true? Ignorance of the law is no excuse. Is that true? Well, in Queensland, it is true. In fact, the Queensland Criminal Code Act of 1899, so it's been around a long time, the Criminal Code Act of 1899, Section 22, Paragraph 1 says, Ignorance of the law does not afford any excuse for an act or omission which would otherwise constitute an offence. So there you go. Next time the policeman pulls you up and say, Oh, officer, I didn't realise this was a 60 kilometre an hour zone. I, I, if, if I did, I would have been travelling at least under 70. Um, Ignorance is no excuse. No excuse. But when it comes to God and the way we live our lives and what constitutes sin against God, generally we're humans, we're pretty good at, at being quick to claim, oh, but I didn't know that was sin. I, oh, I, I, I didn't know that that was sin, therefore I, I couldn't, it couldn't have been wrong. Now, is that a defence? Many people who argue against God are very quick to make the argument, uh, but what about those who don't know? Can God be just if he judges people against a standard that they're ignorant of? Well, in Romans chapter 1, that gets taken up and, and there's an answer to it. Basically, God is just and he'll, he will only judge us by what we do know. But the problem is, even if I'm judged by what I do know, I'm still guilty. 
Have you ever done something, anything that you knew was wrong? Well, of course you have. Of course you've done what you knew was wrong. Well, that's sin. And by that sin, you would be judged as guilty. And so our sin needs to be dealt with. But God's not trying to trick us, right? God's not trying to entrap us and trying to catch us out doing the wrong thing. And that's why God did give the law, to help us to know and to identify what sin is. The law makes us aware of sin. But the problem is, when I become aware of sin, I become aware that I'm a sinful, sinful person. And that's quite burdensome, isn't it? When I realise that I'm a sinner, it's like, God, help me. I don't want to be that sinner anymore. And so we come to the second purpose of the law. And this is where it actually sounds harder. And this is probably the harshest part, but stick with me. The law imprisoned everything under sin. Now, some people get really cranky um, about, oh, you Christians, you talk about sin way too much. And even some people who, who, who are in the church say, oh, you talk about sin way too much in the church. Well, yes, we Christians, we do talk about sin. And yes, we, we talk about it exponentially more than what most people would. And there's a reason for that. It's because people of the world, they don't want to be reminded of sin, so they never talk of sin. Of course they wouldn't talk about sin. Why would they? Though it's been quite curious to me at the moment, watching what's been unfolding in Canberra at the moment, with all sorts of self-righteous indignation over immorality happening in the hallowed halls of Canberra. And this is one of the rare times where we see people in the general community being really indignant over sin. But of course, they're only indignant about the sins that other people commit and not about the stuff that they're doing themselves. And the saddest thing about all of this, what's unfolding in Canberra at the moment, it's, it's all about political one-upmanship and point scoring. And we see it on both sides of politics. The word gospel means good news. And the reason that the gospel is such very good news is because Jesus sets us free from our sin. And if we don't have an awareness of, of how much we are imprisoned by sin, if we don't have an awareness of how soul-destroying sin is and, and how until we are set free by Christ, we are under the curse of sin, until I come to the realisation, as Paul did, that I'm the worst of sinners and, that, and I'm a dirty, rotten scoundrel, until I realise that, that sin makes me to be a vile stench in God's nostrils, and until I realise, and it's my fault, 
My sin is my fault. It's nobody else's fault. It's not my mum's fault for the way she fed me. It's not, my, it's not my parents' fault for the way that I was brought up. It's not society's fault for the way that I've been treated or any particular bully's fault from, that, that impacted me in my life. My sin is my fault. Nobody else's. Totally. Completely. And until I understand this, I won't know how good the good news really is. The law can't save me from sin, but it does drum it into me that I need a saviour. It's not just going to be beneficial for me if I have a saviour. I need a saviour. Verse 22 says, but the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. This isn't just a gift that God gives to everyone the freedom from sin. It's a gift given to those who believe in Jesus Christ. Thirdly, the purpose of the law was to be a guardian until Christ came. I really like this analogy. Um, we generally think of a guardian as someone who watches out for the best interests of a child until they're old enough to make their own way in society. And yep, that's what a guardian does. But the sense of guardianship as it's written here is also about instruction. Um, the Greek word is pedagogos. Now, any of the teachers among us, we're a bit short on teachers here today. There's a couple of you trained in education. Um, and, and in your training in education, you would have encountered the word pedagogy. Did you encounter that word, Laura? Wendy, did you encounter that word? Pedagogy. What is pedagogy? It's the method and practice of teaching. That's the English word. Where do you think that word came from? It came from the Greek word, pedagogos. Um, anyway, a guardian watches over a child to keep them safe. A guardian instructs the child. A guardian helps a child to know right from wrong and disciplines a child when they do wrong. And a guardian makes the child ready to live well without the guardian having to constantly correct them. And the law did all of these things. Now, you know as well as I do um, that if everybody did just whatever they felt like, what would society be like? It'd be a complete schmozzle. It'd be mayhem. Our society needs laws to help to keep itself in order. And guess where the basics of our Western civilization uh, laws came from? They came from God's word. And now we start to wonder, why is, why is our society going to putty when we're continuously removing God's laws from our criminal code? But for the law to be a guardian, it's looking forward to a time when we won't need a guardian. If not, the law wouldn't be called a guardian, it'd be called a policeman. 
but the Old Testament covenantal law would only ever be a guardian because it looked forward. It was going to be a temporary measure. It looked forward to the time when Jesus Christ would come with the new covenant. The prophet Jeremiah prophesied about this. In Jeremiah chapter 31. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares Yahweh. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbour and each his brother saying, Know Yahweh, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares Yahweh. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Now that, that Christ has come under the new covenant, disciples of Jesus, well, the, the law isn't our guardian anymore. The Holy Spirit lives inside of us. This is the promise of God. He quickens our consciences. And we talked about this last week. It's like he's taken the old Michael away. The old Michael is dead. And now Christ lives in me. And the old you, when you give your heart to Jesus, the old you is dead and Christ lives in you. And if Christ is truly living in us, we will live by the Spirit and live righteously because that's the way of Christ. Fourthly, and this is something which often gets overlooked. The law provided a means of atonement. Knowing the law isn't enough. It never was. What a, what a dreadful predicament it would be for the people of Israel if they were given the law and so they would realise that they're imprisoned under the law and, 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 and I've sinned against God but what then? They'd be stuck, totally stuck. Well, God in his mercy provided even within the law a means of atonement. And there were various ceremonies and sacrifices for the forgiveness of sin. The big one happened once a year, the Day of Atonement. And that was the occasion where once a year the high priest was allowed to enter the Holy of Holies to be in the very presence of God. And on that day, he'd sacrifice a bull for his own sins. He'd sacrifice a ram for a burnt offering. He'd sacrifice a male goat for the sins of the rest of Israel. I find this amusing, by the way. Um, to atone for his own sins of the high priest takes a whole bull but then for the rest of the people of Israel, one goat. Tell, tells us something about priests. They need a fair bit of forgiveness, maybe. Um, but then, then there was a second male goat. And the high priest would lay both of his hands onto the head of that goat and confess all of the iniquities of the people of Israel, all of their sin, everything that they'd done wrong. And then that goat would be released out into the wilderness 
presumably to get away as far go it was sent away from the presence of God but presumably to go out into the wilderness to die by the way that's where we get our saying scapegoat did you know that You've heard the saying scapegoat. You know what a scapegoat is? It's when somebody else does something wrong and they put the blame onto somebody else. That's exactly where this saying comes from. The sins of the Israel, the, the iniquities of Israel, they had done all of these things. They lay their hands onto the goat and then it escapes out into the wilderness, presumably to die, to take the sins far away from the place that God lives, the temple. And so the sins of Israel were atoned for. But even this was looking forward to the time when the true means of atonement would come. The blood of bulls and goats don't take away, the, take away our sins. It's the blood of Jesus. And all of the sacrifices for the forgivenesses of sin we're looking forward to when Jesus would make the once and for all sacrifice. Of course, we're becoming very aware of this at the moment when this coming Friday we'll be meeting here to, for our Good Friday service. But I want you to hear today, God doesn't want anyone here he doesn't want anyone listening to this recording, be it the video or the audio recording. Does, God doesn't want any of us to be trapped under the burden of sin. The Lord Jesus Christ is the atoning sacrifice. And through the blood of Jesus and by faith in Christ, your sins are atoned for. And you can be set totally free So that was the purpose of the law. It made sin to be a conscious act so that we would know we were sinning. It imprisoned us under sin so that we would know that we need a saviour. Because until I know that I need a saviour, I won't understand how good the good news of Jesus really is. The law was a guardian. It was training us in the way of righteousness and keeping some semblance of order in society and it provided a temporary means of atonement. But all of this leaves us with one more logical question. If God's plan all along was to save the world through the death and re resurrection of Jesus Christ, and that by the grace of God, we would be saved by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. If that was God's plan, why didn't he do it sooner? Why didn't he do it there with Abraham on that day instead of making that old covenant with him? Well, why didn't he take it back? Why didn't he do it with Noah? And instead of destroying the world through the flood, why didn't he do it then? Well, let's take it right back to the Garden of Eden. Eden. Why didn't Jesus come and die right there, right then. And the reason that we can see in, in what we've been studying this morning 
is if that had happened right back then, we would have never have gotten a picture of the perniciousness of sin, of how much sin wheedles its way into our lives and therefore how much we need a saviour. We wouldn't understand how much sin cuts us off from God because that's what all of the temple cleanliness laws and stuff were about. The way that people could come to realisation, I can't come before God because I'm not clean. And it was only after you'd gone through the cleansing that you came to God. You wouldn't know that. We wouldn't know that. And we wouldn't know how devastating it is to be cut off from God. And how much it is that our sin keeps us from holiness. And ultimately, we would never understand the love of God, the way that God seeks the sinner, the way that God gave his only son to die for the sinner. See, the pride of man looks the old covenant, the old covenantal law and goes, Ugh. but when we drop our pride, the law reveals to us how we truly are before God. And in the light of the gospel, we know we need Jesus. And as Christians, when we look back to the law, we're reminded of how beautiful and wonderful the freedom that we have in Christ truly is. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for your law. Your word tells us that the righteous love your law. It is good. It is wonderful. But Lord, we thank you that it guides us to Christ. And we thank you for the forgiveness that we have in his name. God, forgive us of our sins. Wash us clean by the blood of Jesus. Holy Spirit, fill us with your presence and help us to live within your new covenant where it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In Jesus' name, amen.